This is JU Israel Teachers Lounge, where we reach out to current Gap Year students, alumni, and any interested listeners, keeping you connected to what's happening in Israel and giving you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, senior JU Israel educator Michael Unterberg, and today joined, as always, by co-host and director of JU Israel, Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Doing good, Mike. All right. And today we are also joined by guest Avidan Friedman. How are you, Avidan? Great. Uh, Avidan Friedman is the rabbi of uh, the Shalom Hartman Institute's Chavruta program, an educator uh, at Hartman Boys High School in Jerusalem, and an activist against Israeli weapon sales to human rights violators, which is the topic we wanted to talk to you about today. So before we get into that topic, though, can you just give us a little background where you're from, how you ended up doing what you're doing? Um, sure. I grew up in Montreal. I'm a Canadian boy. And um, I learned after so high school. So we should do the rest of this conversation in French? Is that no, the... no, no. French is is okay. okay. Or you just say A after every okay, few fine. sentences. That's easier. That's make easier. me feel comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, good, it's good days to be to be Canadian. Montreal, Toronto, not exactly, but it's good days to be mm-hmm. Canadian. Um, I studied in uh, in the Gush, in Shivat Haritzion, after finishing high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went back and studied in NYU. Um, I did smicha at Chovavei Torah. Mm-hmm. I taught at Asayar High School. And then with my family, I made Aliyah. Um, all along, I was really very, very involved in B'nai Akiva and religious Zionism, religious Zionist education. And, and that's the place where I really made Aliyah from, from an ideological place of, of commitment to religious Zionism. Um, and I started really the day after I got off the plane um, teaching at the Hartman High School, which is a fantastic school, and um, there's a lot of opportunity to do a lot of good work there. And it just happened a few years after teaching there. Um, I guess it was almost two and a half years ago that we brought in a guest speaker um, on Asara B'tevet, and he was speaking to us in the A context- fast day uh, in the winter, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sure. And uh, he was speaking to us in the context of um, of the Holocaust and speaking to us about Raoul Wallenberg. And at the end of his of his talk, of his monologue, um, he introduced us to, to this issue. And um, he spoke to us about how uh, essentially Raoul Wallenberg had um, sacrificed himself um, in many ways in order to, to save Jews. Um, and and that that idea of seeing the other and sacrificing for them is something that the Jewish state, unfortunately, is not uh, embodying nowadays, specifically in terms of this issue of, of selling arms and providing training to the most brutal dictatorships uh, that exist on the face of the earth. And I heard about it, and I was completely floored. Um, I couldn't believe, you know, I, I'd never... I'd never taught in the context of my religious Zionist um, teaching or been educated about this particular issue. Um, and so I started to to study and to learn about it. And when I realized that it wasn't just propaganda and that it was really true, I, I felt compelled to to act. So really for the last two and a half years, I've been trying to to do everything I can within within what I'm able to do um, to, to do something about it. Yeah, histor- historically, it's not a new issue. In other words, no. like Israel had relations right. with apartheid South Africa back in the day. Correct. and Yeah, I mean, this is a longstanding... It's a longstanding issue and also a longstanding claim against the state of Israel from, mm-hmm. from uh, um, all kinds of critics, of course. Uh, but you wrote a blog about a couple weeks ago um, in the Times of Israel... Just well, uh, uh, um, ten days ago, or something like that. Yeah. The the blog was just yeah. before last week, right before right. Yerushalayim. Yeah. Uh, so, what sparked you now to um, sort of write the blog? And in the blog, you said you were you were going to go on a hunger strike. 
Right. I, I went on the hunger strike for, for the last week. I was on a hunger strike from uh, from Yom Yerushalayim until Shabbat for right. the week, um, the final week of, uh, of the counting of the Omer, the week leading up to Shavuot. Um, it wasn't the first blog that I wrote in the Times of Israel. I've written many blogs on this issue right. in the Times of Israel. Um, ever since being exposed to the issue. The reason I I did the hunger strike now um, was was really just because I had an opportunity to, to do it um, in terms of work and, and my personal life. I had an opportunity that I hadn't had to fully dedicate myself to this issue. Um, and and over the last two and a half years, there's been a, uh, an ever-increasing oh. sense of dissonance on my part between how bad this this issue is the, the the magnitude of the travesty on the one hand and and my own response i felt like you know i'm writing about it and i'm talking about it and i'm having meetings and organizing conferences about it but if it's as really as bad as i said as i say it is and and i think it is i know it is um i need to be doing more so i don't feel like i even did as much as i should have but but i i upped it a notch Okay, so what, what, inform should, us a little. Yeah, yeah. Can you give us some example of some of these regimes and some of the specific aid that Israel has given them? So, so as you mentioned, it's an issue that's been going on now for for about thirty years. Um, but it's it's something like uh, um, I mean, it's, it's more uh, before that also, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but it, it's something like an addiction, meaning it, it's it's something which which grows and grows. So, if um, two years ago the the Ministry of Defense reported exports of about six billion dollars. Um, Last year, they they reported exports of nine billion dollars. We sell um, we sell arms and provide training to uh, about 130 countries in the world, um, which basically contains a list of any country that is either not a direct enemy uh, of the Jewish state or direct supporter of enemies of the Jewish state or countries that are directly in conflict in some way with the United States. And and so we don't sell to, to either of those two groups, pretty much anybody else we're willing to sell to. Now, within that list, there are a lot of fine countries. I don't think any country is, is perfect, but I think, I believe, just as we need arms in order to defend ourselves, and that's that's not only legitimate for a country, that's that's one of a, a country's raison d'etre, to throw in a little French. That's <laughs> the reason that the, the country exists, is to defend its its citizenry. Um, and so the countries that we sell to that are engaged in that, I, I have absolutely no problem. And we can make a lot of money and develop wonderful things. And I actually think that it's a, it's a kiddush Hashem, it's a sanctification of, of God's name, that we take the unfortunate circumstances that we're in, of being attacked, and we allow our own ingenuity to to go out and to help others. But then there's a whole list of nations that are not democracies, and they're not primarily interested in defending their citizens. They're primarily interested in defending the power and the control over resources of their dictator. Places like um, Cameroon, places like South Sudan, um, like Honduras, like the Philippines, which is somewhat of a democracy, but um, but an authoritarian one, um, and like Burma, um, and, a, and a long list of other nations where what our arms are doing are enabling human rights violations, um, including even um, including even really ethnic cleansing and genocide. Isn't there a law in Israel that we're not allowed to sell weapons to um, governments that are violating UN human rights? Uh? 
No. Um, no. So I'll explain exactly what the situation in terms of the law is. Until 2007, there was no uh, there was no specific law related to weapons exports, and and the the laws related to exports on weapons were just the the regular laws related to exports. In 2007, only because of American pressure, um, because of a diplomatic crisis um, that had to do with sales that we made to China, right. um, the Americans came in and demanded that that we pass a law and we passed the law very, very quickly. Um, that law makes absolutely no mention of human rights. Uh-huh. That law says that we, um, that Israel won't sell weapons to any country which would endanger our own interests, um, either our security interests or our diplomatic interests. Um, there is no mention at all in the law, I've read it many times, of, right. of human rights issues. The claim of the body that's responsible for giving um, licenses where as of in 2007, as of the passing of that law, every single weapons um, transaction needs to first go through a license from the Ministry of Defense, which says exactly where they're selling to and even who the final user is. Um, and the claim of, of that body, in Hebrew it's called API, uh, I think in, in, in English it's D-E-C-I, um, their claim is that they always take human rights issues into account which you can't know because all of their decisions are completely um, are completely concealed and confidential mm-hmm. and Opaque. and are not open to, to the public. Right. Um, but I would say if they do take them into account, uh, it can't be a very significant factor. Well, if you're selling factor. to South Sudan and Myanmar, right. then it wasn't taken as a priority, certainly, in that accounting. Absolutely. So uh, let me ask you, just in terms of your framing, to, pl- to play devil's advocate, um, in your framing, you were saying the lesson of Raul Wallenberg is to look out for others, no matter what their culture, and, and take care of them. But Raul Wallenberg essentially was a heroic individual fighting against this immense machine. States and also going against his state. Nachon, he, he was he, violating right. his own his own uh, his state's premises of his own job. Really, yeah. he wasn't acting in the interests of his own state. States have to act in the interest of their own state. There's real politique that in order for a state and an economy to function. Uh, moral considerations you you weigh, but ultimately can't be deciding factors. How can how can any state, you know, what what if the United States or Great Britain stops having diplomatic relations or selling to, or you know, with with any, uh, what what is it like sixty percent of the world population don't live in free countries, so if we start morally evaluating Russia and China and and all of these countries and saying well, we'll have to just morally ostracize them. How, how are states to function? So, so a few answers to that. Um, I mentioned Roe Wallenberg because that was that was the story that that first exposed it to me. But for me, that's not my own um, the the thinking that goes into my own activism around this. Doesn't primarily come from from Roe Wallenberg. It primarily comes from what do I think the state of Israel is here to do. What, what are we here for? What do we have a state for? And it's really from the place for me of, of my own religious Zionist ideology. Um, but but I will, before getting into that, say I'm not talking about even, I'm not even such an idealist to talk about not having diplomatic relations with any bad actor countries. All I'm talking about right now is let's not arm and train their militias. 
if we would just be selling to South Sudan the unbelievable innovations that we have developed in terms of solar energy and water treatment and desalination and and all of the things which irrigation are, which are exactly which are making the world a better place for human beings I would I, I don't think I would have a problem with that because even though you could argue that because it's a dictatorship, it is still helping the dictator maintain power, it's making people's lives better. And um, so so that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the the arming of these countries, and there the United States does not. Um, the United States does impose moral limits on itself um, in uh, the, the law is called the Leahy Law. Um, now, to what extent are they... Uh, are they observed or not yeah. observed is is always a question about laws. But the first step is to have a law in place. and that's that's a step that mm-hmm. we're that we're not even at. Um, so so the the United States, as well as as the European Union have the the ATT, the arms trade treaty that they've ratified that that Israel hasn't ratified. But I want to get to the I mean, to the major point. just for just me. as an aside historical side note that doesn't have to do directly with this topic, the United States has a long record of selling arms and and, and empowering right. militarily and diplomatically everything from the Khmer Rouge to currently Saudi Arabia and Yemen. So, so, so for instance, in the case of Saudi Taliban. Arabia, mm-hmm. it, Taliban in the, well, we created, uh, we created Al Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. Right. So like the United States. So, right. So, so in the case of Saudi Arabia right now, what you have is a situation where the United States has been um, exporting arms to, to Saudi Arabia, even despite the, their human rights violations in Yemen. But what you have in the United States and in Europe around that issue is A, transparency, which we don't have here. It's known. Um, it's something the United States reports on. And you have serious, um, you have serious civil um you know, uh, opposition Activism. to and it even and political, activism. Even and, and there's a political outlet mm-hmm. because there's a problem with doing that uh, vis-a-vis the law. And we don't have in Israel, unfortunately, any of those things. And that, that brings me to... to well, the, Congress the main, has cut the funds to, the main to supply, point, Yeah, whatever. That's, the main, the main point the for me is I don't think Israel is here. Uh, I, I don't think, I don't believe that we're here just in order to survive. I don't believe, that's not my vision for the state of Israel. I believe in the vision of the state of Israel um, that, that we're here in order to, to not just be a safe haven, for for the Jewish people and to make sure we don't get killed, um, that's that's not the the ultimate vision of the state of Israel. That's maybe the secular yeah, Herzl you, vision of the state of Israel. But the, sta- is. but the but state of Israel, but the state of Israel that yes, that that I'm that I'm envisioning is is a moral beacon, is what we call an orla goyim, is a light unto the nations. So which is what Herzl. And, and that's a Herzl formulated. Uh, to, but yeah. I think I, he took it from Isaiah. But okay. Um, <laughs> but 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 I think the the idea of um, again, for me, it sits very, very firmly and, and deeply on, on religious places and, and religious beliefs is that our, our survival uh, alone does not justify um, our, our being here in the state of Israel. And that's, that's a big statement, right, but, I but, think it's, but I think it's a statement so, that's backed up by religious thinking because in religious thinking, anytime we didn't live up to the religious vision of what this place was supposed to be, we lost our sovereignty. The Jewish people wasn't destroyed, but we lost our sovereignty. Our sovereignty isn't an end unto itself. It's a tool, and it's a tool in order to embody a certain a conglomerate of spiritual and moral values. And the idea that um, instead of Isaiah's vision that all of the nations come to us to learn peace, um, that all of the nations come to us as they did last week to learn war, including those nations which are slaughtering, um, is for me the deepest violation 
of the vision and and the the destiny of, of the state of Israel. Not to mention it's it's against specific halachic um, mandates, but but it's it's much deeper than that. But you can understand why why Israeli voters are not going to be moved by your particular religious philosophy. That's not you. You can understand that most your argument is a personal conviction, but I, I don't know that it. How, why would that be politically persuasive to the masses of Israeli voters? You have a particular religious belief. Okay, but why, why does that have to do with my politics? I, I accept that. Um, I would hope that it would be it would have more traction within the religious Zionist world, which which I feel like has really um, sunk into this idea of realpolitik. If in the last podcast you were talking about um, Israel and, and being a Medinat Halakha, um, well, if Betel Smutrich is willing to justify any violation of the Halakha in the name of realpolitik, so what happens to Medinat Halakha? So here, he's willing to, to justify this violation, not only of specific Halakha, but also of the vision, really, of what Halakha is because of realpolitik. Well, you could justify a lot of things in the name of realpolitik. You could justify work on Shabbat, certainly, and you could justify LGBT. You could justify anything in the name of realpolitik. Basically, Halakha has no meaning once you say that that is, you know, at the end of the day, we need to right, survive. I'm not, I'm not trying um, to... So, so, so I would say in terms of the religious Zionist public, um, I would hope it has more traction, and it has gained some traction with... Uh, I've, I've been involved in, in organizing a number of, of letters of major religious Zionist leaders, um, Rav Meidan, Rav Yuval Sherlow, uh, Rav Emma Cohen. If uh, I remember the correctly, of, of uh, Yehuda Glick, when he came into the Knesset, that was his first um, sort of mis- uh, bill that he tried to introduce. But what's it, fascinating about this issue is that... But know, it didn't go anywhere, right? That's how, no, it didn't go anywhere. So. Um, that's how I speak to... You know, that's how I explain myself. Um, and, and that's how I speak to, to those who share those ideals. But you're absolutely correct. It, it doesn't, that doesn't resonate. Uh, what's interesting about this I'm, I'm issue is... I'm looking for what will is, be persuasive to... Right. So what's, what's interesting about, about this issue, I think a broad swath of, of the Israeli public doesn't want to see Israel isn't so cynical... Um, that they that they think that we need to or that we can justify supporting genocide in order to to pad our own pockets. I mean, I don't think it was an excuse. I don't think it's an excuse we would we would accept for a government who says, "Well, I'm going to arm Hamas and I'm going to I'm going to give um, you know weapons to to Hezbollah because listen, I'm, I'm making money off of it." I, when we have a problem with people doing that, I think we want to not only make the problem, make the claim that it's, it's endangering us, but we want to make a moral claim. It's morally wrong for you to be supporting Hamas. It's morally wrong for you to be supporting Hezbollah. These are terrorist bodies that attack civilians. Um, so I think most people want to be able to make a, a moral claim. You're saying if a European yeah. company supports those entities who are hurting us, we would tell them what you're doing is destructive, not only to us, but to the world order. You're supporting the undermining of civilization. You shouldn't sell weapons to Hamas and Hezbollah. So we should also, that's what you're arguing? That, I mean, because that to me is a more... That's absolutely, that's more and I don't think we would we would accept the justification of, well, you know, we need it for, for our own... Yeah, we're making for, money. We're making money off of it, or or even, you know, we need to have diplomatic relations with, with these countries. Um, and which I think I, there's... Uh, which um, I understand is actually the more the the uh, motivation is many times is not the money as much as the diplomatic relations, whereas Israel's often very isolated in places like the UN, and a lot of these countries... Um, they trade off support because um, the third world countries and whatnot that have so right. We uh, buy diplomatic yeah. support with the blood of their innocents, right. to put it bluntly. Right. Um, and and uh, to me, the question is, is I, I would say that there are two things about that. First, I think, and, and Rav Yol Benun has made this argument several times. It's very short sighted. That's exactly what happened to us in South Africa. Right. Any any dictatorship is um, has a uh, has a time limit 
on it. That's the nature of our world. Eventually, somebody is going to come and, and overturn the dictator. And it could very well be that those people who we were slaughtering or we were helping to slaughter are now going to be the, uh, are now going to be the, the rulers. And, and they're not, they don't have very fond feelings for us in their hearts. Now, I don't think, so you can make a, a Hasbara argument about it, but, but I think it's, again, it's kind of cynical. And I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to say the reason we shouldn't help others commit genocide is because we want people to like us. I think we're no, people who have... Well, well, but I don't think that's the argument. The yeah. argument is, and, and you can base this also very much in the Bible, <laughs> the argument is that morality isn't the annoying thing that stops us from being what's practical. The argument is you do well when you do good. That ultimately by pursuing morality, that long term will bring about the best results for the largest number of people. And so that morality isn't just a sort of Pollyannish impediment to people who are really getting things done. Morality is meant to be, and I, and I think this is quintessentially Jewish, whether you're, you know, religious or not, this idea that, that morality is the guide to do better. And so short term, okay, if that makes diplomacy harder, fine. But long term, if we, if, we, if our identity is self-expressed as in, 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 through moral leadership, ultimately that will prove a benefit. I, I, I think you have to you have to make the doing well by doing good argument to persuade people who maybe even believe agree with you ideologically, but think that politics is just different. That politics is just the realm of just getting things done. It, we, we're very cynical about the role of the state and of law and of government these days. And so there's a deeper problem than just this particular issue, which is a cri critical issue. I think there's a deeper issue, which is people have divorced the behavior of governments from moral responsibility and think that's okay. Right, I, I agree with you. I think that's exactly 100% the deeper issue. I think that this is the the ugliest symptom of that issue. I think there are many, many symptoms that we can look at Israel today and see. Um, but I think that the, the sending young people who have just finished elite army um, training and and having them go off and put lots of money into their pockets by training people who then turn around and, and kill others. I think these are some of, the, not some of, I think really to me, these are the ugliest. I think it should be the low-hanging fruit exactly. of, of essentially Sharansky's argument, which is that democratic principles makes things work better for everybody, including yourself. I just don't know if things are any different now than they ever were in terms of states. They aren't, but, but yeah. I think part I mean, of what... States were always cynical and... Self-motivated and didn't necessarily take morality into yeah, but that that's not a very good no no. I'm just uh, I'm not saying it's an excuse. I'm just saying like uh, well, I think nowadays that, I think we're living we, in a world where there is um, there is greater accountability to to the public. Uh, there's still a lot of money and there's a lot of cynicism and there's a lot of things that are that are covered up. But it is becoming harder and harder and harder um, for for governments not to be uh, not to be not to be accountable. The world is more open. There are less secrets. Communication is more open. So I think we are seeing that people have greater and greater power, um, not ultimate power. And absolutely, there's still the cynics who will say, no, really what runs every country is just the money and the power. And that's why there's no chance for, for a uh, an issue like this to, there, to ever an, change. An, an, um, but that's the country I'm, I'm fighting against. That's, an enormous percentage of d people who live in democratic countries think that, you know, making deals with North Korea, with 
you know, with Saudi Arabia after they murder an American resident, with they just think this is this is pretty normal, that praising you know Vladimir Putin, who's trying to undermine liberal democracies of the West, like there there, there is a buy-in from an enormous segment of world population in free that live in freedom, that live in liberal democracies, who are saying. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's them. They can do it their way as long as we benefit. That's the way the world works. That's, what that's the way the world works. And there ha the argument has to be made. This does not help you in the long run. The history of blowback to policies like this, which you're saying, I agree with you. Morality should be done because it's moral. And I agree with you that idealistically, and I, and I do think Herzl was very clear that Zionism is about reaching moral and spiritual perfection. But but we have to recognize that a huge chunk of the population just doesn't buy that. They don't buy that morality for its own sake is worthwhile. They, ha they have to be persuaded that you are trading short-term benefit for long-term self-damage, if not destruction. Yeah, I'm also I'm uh, I'm struggling with this word of, of word of morality because I think a lot of people and. A lot of people who are saying, "Oh, they, they, they will say no." What's moral is our, you know, our society comes first, right? What, what, what you have to do is you have to take care of your own. I mean, whether I agree with that or not, I, that that's how I think people frame it often. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to worry about our society. We have to worry about our country. We have to worry about our city, our state, what, what have you. Which is um, true. And uh, but, but that's not that's a, a that, that's not a, a compelling answer. That wasn't a compelling answer when Canada turned away Jews who were running away from Nazi Germany. That wasn't a. It's not an answer we tend to respect when we say, "Well, where were all of the nations of the world when we were being killed?" We don't say, "Oh, well, they were worrying about themselves, and that's why they weren't taking in refugees." That, that's not an answer we tend to to give lend a lot of moral credence to. What I'm saying is, I do think people today do give moral credence to that. I think yeah. that's. I think the world we live in today. That people absolutely give enormous moral credence to that answer. Only, only and out are of voting. The, only, only out of the only out of the privilege of power. Okay. In, in other words, but throughout Europe not, and America, not, not people, out of a, a real um, a real introspection, a real looking at. Okay, uh, how do you change uh, that? Because the, in Europe, you know, in the European Union vote that we saw in European specific countries, in the United States of America, there is a growing consensus that that is exactly right. That that of course you turn them away because. You turn, of course, you turn they're refugees away your, because it's not good for you. It's not good for me. I, I, of course, I turn them away. That is a hot political issue that people, that politicians are using to gain more power because people seem to be buying into it. That moral considerations are that the moral consideration I take yeah. first is me first. I have to take care of me and mine first. So, so again, for me, going back to trying to think about a Jewish state. And what does it mean to have a Jewish state and and taking Jewish values, which are which are consensus um, across religious and secular? Um, I think there are some very powerful statements of Judaism that say there is an idea of of me first, but it's not me first, and that lets me kill someone else if I'm in danger, not by that person. And if there is a Jewish value which says if. I, I tell you, I will kill you unless you kill that other person. So I don't say, well, my own responsibility is to myself and I need to keep myself alive so I can do whatever it takes. There are no red lines. There are red lines. The red line is has to do with who says that your blood is redder. So I think it's it's the same 
the same issue here. If we're told that the only way for us to survive is to support the murder of others, that needs to be a moral woodline. I agree with you 100% that, that there is a, a self-interest to it. I don't know if I agree that um, that the Jewish people as a whole needs this, or have, have gotten to a state where they need to have the self-interest in order to in order to sign on to it, um, and I think part of it is, you know, is that a lot of people just don't know about this, um, and part of the reason why there's so much invest in people not knowing about this, I think, is because if people did know um, where our weapons were going and what they were doing, they would do something about it. I don't think people I think would. part of the reason people don't care is because they think if it doesn't hurt me directly, then I don't care. And here, I think part of the reason why I think you're hitting on a very good issue to bring out to the public sphere more is because our survival is not dependent on it. You know, and aiding aiding ethnic cleansing in Myanmar right. doesn't. I mean, it helps some bottom line. It helps some diplomatic things, but it's clearly not an existential issue for Israel. And so to say, listen, well, and what, financially, it's negligent. It, uh, to say that if our survival is on the line, why are we doing this? This is disgusting. Um, I do think you can get... By, by the way, the government does claim that we're not arming in Myanmar. They claim that we're not... and, and yeah. But they but they claim... and they're claiming well, they that claim they, that we stopped. On, they claim um, we stopped, right. right. Correct. Um, we claim we stopped in what, 2017? In November 2017, um, there is a claim that we stopped a number of months right. ago. The... The worst round of an ongoing round of, of human rights atrocities was in August 2017. Yeah. Um, so it could be that because of a, a Supreme Court case in September 2017, that at that point they stopped. Right. But that was after um, after about 700,000 people um, out of one million had been displaced from their homes and 10,000 been right. murdered. By the way, the case we didn't bring up, which I think is a precedent in some way of this, was the Sabran Shatila camps in in the Lebanon in 1982. The phalangist um, forces, the phalangist that we enabled where the to... right where the South Lebanese army um, went into Palestinian refugee camps and murdered refugees under Israel's control. Israel didn't do it, but it was clearly seen not only by the world but by Israel in Israel as uh, as an immoral act, even though we weren't actually carrying it out, but because we enabled. And, and the Israeli public called for, and for, the government performed uh -huh. an enormous mea culpa. Ariel mea culpa, Ariel Sharon was never allowed to be minister of defense anymore, although prime minister. Which, yeah, but so it's, however uh, that but we don't get to, but, but I think there is precedent, as you're saying, the Israeli public well, I think, sees that enabling. Yeah. Is, I is think you are wisely picking something that should be much more of a consensus issue if it was raised. And I think that your political action on this issue isn't only you know religiously important, but I think it it's a, it's politically smart because you're picking... I don't use the word term low-hanging fruit, but in other words, the, I agree with you. I think the Israeli public, if they thought about it more, would be angrier about this. So I think, I mean, call a kavod to you for trying to, you know, making yeah. this a cause. I would just say I, I didn't, I don't feel, I don't think of myself as, as having picked it. Um, I'm not an activist by by trade. I'm an educator, and my activism goes through um, the um, you know the avenue of, of education. Um, I just felt as a citizen that that I'm implicated in this as a citizen in a democratic country. Um, so it's really it doesn't come out of a, I wasn't looking for something to do. Right. I wasn't bored. Um, it's a sense of compulsion that I felt that um, in order to stop being partner to genocide and human rights atrocities, I have to do something about well, it. Well, I think I think that's what a true activist is. Somebody. Who's who Agreed. passionate believes something to their core, and feels that they have to make a difference in the world. So, right. 
Cool. Thank you. Cool, cool, and, you know, we're, one of the reasons we wanted to have you is to give you another forum to spread your message and your idea because we think you're really onto something very, very important yeah. and a core, really a core values that we should all agree with and stand for. So thank, thank you. Very you. Much. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you Thanks. for what you do. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Ben. As always. As always. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, this is the part where I remind you that we are the JU Israel Teachers Lounge podcast. And it's also the part where I ask you to subscribe, to rate and review us, and to share and recommend us in any way you can. Also, we'd love your feedback so we can respond to you on or off the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Bye.